Should Markets Have Limits? Today on The Curious Task, I'm speaking with Peter Jaworski. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a traditional liberal perspective through discussion. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Peter Jaworski. Peter Jaworski is an assistant teaching professor at Georgetown University, where he teaches business ethics. He's also one of the co-founders of the Institute for Liberal Studies. When he's not lecturing on ethics, he's trying to explain to anyone he can talk to as to why he should be able to pay me for my blood and plasma. Peter, welcome to The Curious Task. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. <laughs> no, it's our pleasure. So, Peter, in each episode, we explore a question and go wherever the answers lead us. Good. So let's kick it right off. Should markets have limits? Oh, good. I'm glad we started with that broad question. You're obviously of talking course. about my book uh, with Jason Brennan um, called Markets Without Limits. And given the title, you would think that my answer to that question would be um, no, that there shouldn't be any limits to markets. But of course, the answer is yes. Uh, what makes the question interesting, though, isn't like whether or not there should be limits to markets, because clearly there should be, uh, but in virtue of what? So the book Markets Without Limits argues that if it's morally permissible to do something, to exchange something, to do whatever for free, then it, then it should be permissible to do it in exchange for money as well, that very same thing. So everything sort of hangs on the antecedent or the thing that comes at the very beginning. So let me give you an example. Um, uh, sometimes people talk about, when I, when I say that I'm going to talk about this topic, markets without limits, people often ask me, the most obvious one is, well, what about slavery, right? Here you have a case where people are bought and sold. Clearly, we shouldn't allow that, and I agree, we shouldn't allow that. But the question that matters is, what, in virtue of what is it wrong? right? In virtue of what is slavery wrong? On one view, you might think that it's like money changing hands that makes it wrong, and that view seems quite obviously false. I mean, the wrong of slavery isn't in the fact that like people are exchanging money for people. Right. It's that somebody's um, autonomy is being removed, and we are all entitled to be treated as like ends in ourselves, as autonomous people who right. have a right to decide about our own lives. So if you can imagine, like imagine, the, is it any better if a king, as they did in the past, gave a gift of slaves to like another king? And the answer is no, it wouldn't be any better. Ah, you might say, but no money changes hands. And it's like, yeah, but the wrong of slavery has nothing to do with money or markets right. and everything to do with the thing that I said, the removal of the autonomy of that person. Right, so when I say markets without limits, what I mean is that money and markets don't make an otherwise good thing bad. So if it's permissible, permissible for free, then it's permissible for money. That's the thesis. Uh, there are plenty of things that should be limited in terms of the market, but those things are limited because we shouldn't do those things for free, like the case of slavery. Right. And I think many of us, when we approach the word or term markets, we have probably a very narrow definition of what that would be, right? Because I think when people think of uh, like a talking point from any politician from, do we want unregulated markets? Like for that, that's <laughs> usually people are thinking directly of how the market is structured. And that's something I learned when reading your book is that I even had to take off um, my own sort of like, you know, 
a political hat because that's most what we're most used to with news headlines and all this kind of stuff and really think okay I'm, we're talking about ethics here and that's just what you specialize in that's we're right. talking about uh, what would be right to buy or sell with money if you could also do it uh, for free or with nothing exchanged uh, so that was very interesting to kind of like turn my own mind towards that is I had to stop thinking of the idea of markets from like a, an economic or political perspective and we're actually talking about uh, what you um, I think you said somewhere um, what is right but not necessarily your right and that ah, was yeah, interesting yeah. to me okay right so um yes that was a distinction between having a right to do something and it being morally rightful for you to do that particular thing right yeah good so um before we jump into some specific examples, I also want to talk about uh, the commodification objection, which you cover in your book. So I think that goes back to what you were saying before, is that you were talking about markets should obviously be structured and sometimes even regulated, perhaps, but uh, but that doesn't necessarily address what is the commodification objection, which is what most people uh, bring to the table when they're objecting to, should there be a market in XYZ? They're saying, well, we can't commodify this. We can't sell or exchange this. And then in your book, uh, you go into why, once again, it's not the commodification per se that's wrong, but it's the actual exchange of that, regardless if money was exchanged. Yeah, a couple of things to say about the commodification objection. I think you're right. Uh, in my reading of the, uh, we call them anti-commodification theorists, so the name should give you a hint as to how important we think that particular objection is. Right. But in my read of the anti-commodification theorists, there is a popular argument, and I think it is the most popular argument about uh, against markets and certain specific things. Uh, you said at the opening that I keep trying to buy your blood and plasma. So right, so let's take <laughs> the case of, of blood plasma, and I hope we talk a lot about blood plasma right. um, today. But um, some people object to putting a price tag on certain things like blood plasma, like human kidneys, uh, like, like sex, uh, etc. And the reason why is because they associate a price tag with a certain kind of attitude. And in particular, we call it the commodification attitude. And that attitude is to think of the object first as an object rather than something else. Mm -hmm. And it's perfectly okay to think of like couches and chairs and laptops and so on as objects because that's what they are, right? But it's not okay to conceive of uh, sacred items um, uh, of things like people as being merely objects. The wrong of thinking of uh, a person as a mere object is captured by the thought that like you shouldn't think of them as being of merely instrumental value. Right. Right. It, it's like you think about a person in terms of what they can do for you rather than thinking of them as a creature with a dignity and an autonomy uh, and a right to be treated in a particular kind of way. The worry is that when we put a price tag on something, that will lead to us having the attitude of thinking of that thing as a mere object. Right. And uh, Jason Brennan and I approach this issue in a number of different ways. One important way is to try to show that, first of all, that's an empirical question. Right. Uh, uh, we use the example of the fact that like people buy and sell pets. Like uh, people frequently go and they buy a dog. Right. When I and go give talks, I ask people about yeah. their dogs. Do you have a dog, by the way? I Alex? do have a dog. And I was going to say, I would be obviously uh, offended to some degree personally if you said, oh, you bought your dog. You think of it as just a couch. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. right? And the, okay. So I, I ask people, like, have you, uh, how many of you have a dog or a cat? Right. People raise their hands. I, I say, how many of you bought your 
cat or your dog, people raise their hands and I ask them questions about their cat or their dog. And then I make jokes about, um, you know, have you ever taken your dog to the vet? Mm-hmm. And of course, everybody takes their right. dog to the vet. And then I say, well, how much did it cost? And they give me a number. And then I say, well, how much did you pay for your dog? Right. And they give me a number. And then I say, oh, so you have a broken dog. Uh, why don't you replace it with like a brand new <laughs> dog, right? right? Like a fresh out of the box puppy or whatever. Right. Um, <clears throat> and so I asked them, like, why didn't you engage in what you might call like crass economic calculation with respect to your dog? And the answer is the same. It's always the same. And it's like, no, my dog is a member of my family. Right. right. So here is an example where we do, in fact, put price tags on dogs and cats. And yet most people who have pets love them like members of the family. So here's a case where the argument is severed. So the claim that in virtue of putting a price tag on something that leads to people having the attitude of commodification or of objectifying that object, well, that's false in mm-hmm. the case of uh, very many uh, pets. Right. Right. And so that opens the question as to exactly how confident are we that the mere presence of a price tag leads to this commodification. And I've not seen an empirical study on the other side that demonstrates that the mere presence of a price tag or the mere use of market language or something like that results in people having a commodification attitude. Right. And when we're contrasting something being free and something being bought and sold, and you're saying if you do it for free, you could do it in a buy and sell atmosphere, nobody would reject, you know, for instance, adopting a dog or a cat, for instance, for free. So they don't seem to object money being exchanged in that process either. Whereas conversely, as you said, when it comes to something like slavery, no one's going to say, oh, you can have a slave as long as someone gives it to you for free. And no one's going to say, okay, well, therefore, you shouldn't be able to pay for that either. So it's interesting that the logic to most people is what we would call, air quote, common sense when it comes to a dog or cat. But with other things, like we're going to get into blood, plasma, and kidneys, and stuff, it's not so much. So it's interesting they don't carry that logic over, I find. I think that's a good point. And in the way that you describe it, that makes me, you know, I think a lot of cases of people feeling repulsed. So the broad, look, it's sometimes called repugnant markets. Right. And the reason why they're called repugnant markets is because people feel a sense of repugnance or revulsion or disgust at the idea of people buying and selling. And then here's a list of things. Right. Um, I think at least part of the explanation for why we already talked about one, which is that people infer from the presence of a price tag in unusual circumstances. Right. Because when we're talking about markets and kidneys, it's like we don't have markets and kidneys. Right. So people go, okay, what would that be like if we allowed people to sell their kidneys? And they go, okay, well, first, they're going to start thinking of their body as a mere commodity. They infer that. Now, I, I say, look, I've not seen evidence that that's true. And the case of dogs and cats seems to demonstrate that there's at least some cases where it isn't true. Right. Where the connection isn't made. The other element of this, and I think it pervades a lot of this, and in particular, the blood plasma debate that's ongoing in Canada at the moment, is that people infer from the sale of something the intentions of the person selling it, and they infer that that person has selfish motives, non-altruistic, non-pro-social motives. And so I think the real objection is this worry that if we allow price tags to be attached to at least some things, then one, people are going to objectify the things that have a price tag. And second, uh, the people selling it uh, are going to do it with the wrong kinds of motives. Right. Well, then, if it's interesting to me that people, when they're thinking about markets that they're used to, like, um, for instance, 
like like the pet adoption market effectively right we can buy and sell pets of course there are some fringe terrible circumstances where pets are you know sold out of a box in an alleyway whatever but ultimately people are generally comfortable with the idea you can go buy a pet and make it a member of your family that's right and you know we have pet smart we have these big box stores we have adoption agencies everything's nice and clean why do you think when people think of a market uh, for kidneys, for instance, they immediately jump to the idea that it's never going to be like a big box store, l- air quote, legit thing. It's going to be some sort of weird back alley market. And that's what happens when things become legal. Why, why do you think people can't sort of, you know, um, you know, put what they're used to every day when they go buy a sandwich or adopt a pet against the idea that we could also have this when it comes to something like uh, kidneys or blood or plasma? Oh, boy, I wish I knew the answer to that question because I don't. And I find it so puzzling, especially in the case, it, it, anything having to do with This is the medicine. source of your exasperation, I guess. It is, it is pretty <laughs> exasperating. I do yeah. talk about, um, you know, I do think that it would be a really good idea if we allowed, uh, if we compensated people for um, donating their kidney. In the United States, there's over 100,000 people who are waiting for a kidney. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Canada, the numbers are proportionately uh, roughly the same. Uh, I don't mean that there's 100,000 people. I mean compared to the population of Canada. Right. Um, and uh, lots of people are going to die as a consequence of not getting a kidney. And I'm confident that if we allowed people to sell their kidney, that that would clear the demand for those kidneys. And so many people would live who now face the prospect of uh, of not living. I have a friend of mine from high school who sent me a text message literally last week, um, and she explained that she had uh, stage 3 chronic kidney disease. Stage 3 is okay. You can live, like, your whole life in stage 3. It's when you get to, like, stage 4 <clears throat> and stage 5 that you'll need a transplant, mm-hmm. right? So, so it's just about everybody is touched by the issue of kidney disease and people having uh, issues with their with their kidneys. So she she might end up needing one. And I think that like if this is going to be effective at resulting in uh, people getting those kidneys, then that's something that counts strongly in favor of allowing it to happen. But when I say that, people go, ah, well, what about those emails that I get where people say like you wake up in a bathtub full of ice and like somebody is taking a kidney. And I'm like, what do you think <laughs> is going, do you think that like, you're familiar with the medical system in Canada, right? Yes. Do you think, so I want you to picture this now. Imagine right. somebody shows up at a hospital, knocks on the door, and goes, I've got a cooler full of kidneys. Right. You want two, like 20 bucks a piece or $2,000 a piece. What doctor or medical professional in Canada, in their right minds, would accept that bargain? Right. In what world would our medical system suddenly change so much that this kind of thing? No, it would fit in under the current regime. It would be a regulated. Right. It would be regulated in the same way that all medical uh, things in Canada and in the U.S. are regulated. It right. wouldn't be like that. It's so strange to me that people jump to that. I mean, it's the same with um, with uh, drugs, with. Um, Marijuana, right? Take marijuana. Canada is moving ahead with like allowing it. Mm-hmm. And people people sometimes imagine that like the black market right. is just going to double, triple, quadruple. And right. the features of the black market are going to be represented in the legal trade. Right. That's utter nonsense, right? The reason why the black market has many of the features that it has is precisely because it is illegal. Right. And if you made it legal, then many of those features would go away, as we saw with like the 
end of alcohol prohibition. It's not like the mafia continued to sell. It's not the mafia that's, in a way, it's the mafia that sells alcohol here, <laughs> right? It's now the Liquor Control Board of Ontario. Right. That, Right. So it would change dramatically. And the reason why it's so bad in many cases is precisely because right. it's illegal. And if there's kidney running now, which in some places there actually is, it yes. would probably end with the legalization of a market for kidneys or something like that. It would absolutely. There's no there's no question that if we legalized uh, uh, compensation for kidney donation, that a lot of this would go away. Right. There's a lot of medical tourism. People travel to the Philippines, for example. Uh, there's a village in the Philippines where just about every male over the age of 16 has sold one of their wow. kidneys. But if you if you made it legal, then why would somebody risk being caught, getting into a lot of trouble, going to the back alley, taking out the saw, etc. <laughs> when you can when you can just get yeah when you can get a legal right. Kidney. That's right. And I think that that dovetails nicely into something that you guys seem to repeat a lot in the book. And I don't think you're repeating it because it was sloppy writing. I think it's a point you really want to get across, <laughs> which was that look. We're not saying that um, we don't care how the market is structured. We're saying what should be bought and sold is effectively everything that we could do for free, but it's how the market is structured. And you even go into this nice little metaphor about guitar amplifiers. You say some amplifiers sound the best when you dial them the right way, and you said, look, that's what a market's like. We're not saying, okay, guys, this is, this is legal, have fun, but there, should, there will obviously be a structure to certain markets, but forget about what is uh, bought and sold to have an issue with um, when it comes to if you can do it for free, but how we can structure that market. And you guys keep repeating that in the book, and, and I'm glad you did, because it really, once again, when I had to take off my politics and my economics hat and put on my ethics hat in reading your book, it, that really hammered it home for me, is like you're saying. It's not the what, but the how it could be structured. Yeah, I think that's a, a really important point in the book that we try to explain. A regulated market is a market. And the question that we're addressing ourselves to is the in-principle question of what can be bought and sold. There is a separate question about how we buy and sell things. Exactly. And I think uh, most of the um, most of the issues are in the how, not in the what. Right. I, I hope that many people reading our book come away with the impression that, like, yeah, actually, they're right. The what question has been solved. The mm -hmm. next step is to figure out. What is the best way to sell certain kinds of things? There's even a sentence in there where you say, if you, I think it's something along, if you think of your own objections to our, our thesis, you'll find that you probably have uh, more of a problem with how it would go about being sold than what it is itself being sold. Yeah, to get back to kidneys for a second, the objections that we get to um, allowing a market in kidneys include things like, um, well, the poor will become a source of spare parts for the rich. That's actually a quote from Al Gore before the 1984 National Organ Transplantation Act. He said that. Oh, I didn't know that. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's a very interesting quote. <clears throat> um, and the worry there is that poor people will be coerced and exploited. They will be coerced by their poverty, and then rich people will take advantage of them and like take their kidneys or make them on an offer that they can't refuse. And you make the point in the book that um, some people might immediately jump to the idea that the very uh, essence of buying or selling something is necessarily exploitation, whereas you say, no, no exploitation is a different thing. We're going to talk about that here. Yeah, that's right. And then you can always respond to that kind of objection by saying, well, okay, you can make it illegal for people to uh, sell their kidney unless they make, say, $150,000 a year. Right. So that would exclude the category of people who might be subject to the coercion or exploitation objection. 
I mean, similarly, a different proposal that doesn't a different proposal because another worry might be that people might sell their kidney without doing due diligence, a sufficient amount of research into the impact that giving up a kidney might have on their lives. So here's a solution that here's a uh, a way to knock out all these birds with one stone, and it's like you have to get a license to sell your kidney. Hmm. And in order to get the license, you have to pay tuition at like Carleton University or whatever. Um, and you go to this course and it tells you all about like what it takes to sell your kidney, what happens to you when you do, uh, what a life looks like right. with only one kidney, et you cetera. Write a, you write a test. You complete a test. <laughs> you get in front of the class with a little Bristol board and you explain <laughs> what you learned. And then at the end, you get a license and then you can sell uh, a kidney. And right. notice that that, like, that, that makes it... Uh, uh, that eliminates the worries about people going into this ignorantly. It it also eliminates the worry of like coercion and exploitation because actually, in fact, who's going to be able to, you know, which poor person is going to be able to afford the time uh, and the tuition costs of going to Carleton for a year, six months, however long this this uh, licensing course would cost. Right. right. You would effectively eliminate that worry as well. Can you get into uh, what you, as someone who focuses on ethics academically, defines as exploitation? Because I still think some people listening to this might go like, okay, I get that, you know, selling a kidney to someone with a lot of money might not be, uh, you know, exploiting me in an, in an academic sense, but it's, it feels like, like exploitation. Someone might be taking advantage, so to speak. Could you, could you get into that? Yeah, I'm happy to. So um, the central core of exploitation is about an unfair division of like the benefits of trade. Okay. So exploitation is um, uh, we make an exchange, say, and I get most of the benefit and you get very little of the benefit. As an example. As an ex- uh, Do you want an example? Yes. yes. Oh, okay, sure. So, um, <clears throat> so suppose you find gold in your backyard. But you think of it as just like yellow stones, like you just don't know. Because that I'm uneducated it's gold. on You're gold. You're uneducated, you don't know about gold. And mm-hmm. I see that. And I seize on your ignorance. And I say, oh, I'll just get rid of this from your backyard. You don't even have to pay me. And then I take all the gold and then I sell it on the market and I'm rich. And, you know, mm-hmm. that's a case where you are exploited. And I took advantage of your lack of knowledge. Uh, the fact that you didn't know that what you had was worth a lot. And then I got all, just about all of the benefits right. from that exchange and you got very little. So that's like the central core of exploitation. It's this unfair division and it's taking advantage of somebody else's either ignorance or their poverty or their poor position right. to get them to do something that they wouldn't do if they knew more or if they had more resources. I say that's the central core. There are a few other. Exploitation is a notoriously fuzzy concept. Uh, uh, I think a pretty good way of capturing it is uh, there's like three components. And if you meet any one of these three components, then you have at least a case for exploitation. The three components are undue risk, undue uh, pressure, and an unfair division of the benefits from trade. Uh, undue risk is like I make you do something or I ask you to do something that is pretty risky to you, right? Uh, whatever it is. <clears throat> uh, undue uh, pressure is like there's 
a context within which you have a hard time saying no and you're kind of pushed into doing something that you don't want to do. And we just discussed the third category of like a, an unfair division of the benefits from trade. To make it concrete and to talk about blood plasma for a second, um, people object to, this is this will come with a bit of a preface, people object to the paying uh, for blood plasma donations. Lots of people object to compensating blood plasma donors. At the moment, Canada imports over 70% of the medicine that we make from human blood plasma uh, from the United States where donors are paid. Wow. Right? Blood plasma is the yellow liquid. Uh, it consists of mostly water, but also these like essential proteins. And we make a number of different medicines from that blood plasma, including like immune globulin, uh, albumin, uh, and clotting factors. Those are the three like primary things. So just so I understand, the uh, government uh, in Canada uh, has a problem with, is well, it is illegal, for instance, for us to have a market uh, for blood and plasma amongst ourselves, but they're perfectly okay with having an international market where they can purchase blood and plasma from the states, or is it free? How, how does that work? How do we get okay. So what's going on there? <clears throat> So plasma is the yellow liquid. Blood is like the red and white uh, 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 cells and platelets. Okay. Um, that's the rest of the thing. And we don't, we don't allow compensation for blood donation. Uh, we don't allow it here in Canada at all. In the United States, it's not illegal, but you are required to label any blood donation as having been paid for. And hospitals do not buy uh, paid-for blood for purposes of like transfusion. So the American Red Cross, I don't know whether the Canadian, Canadian Blood Services does this or not, but the American Red Cross does pay people for blood donations if it's used for research purposes. Oh, okay. But if it's used for transfusion, the standard is they don't, and that's kind of the standard everywhere. It's a little bit different with plasma because you can use plasma for transfusions, and that is not paid for. Uh, but you can also make these medicines that I mentioned out of plasma. In order to make these medicines, it goes through like a rigorous screening process, and then there's also all kinds of cleansing things that we do to that plasma, like nanofiltration, for example. Uh, there's solvents and detergents that we use to clean that. Uh, that plasma, and that basically kills HIV, hepatitis, uh, 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 all kinds of hepatitis things, HBV, HCV, etc. Um, <clears throat> and so for that reason, people sometimes, uh, for that reason, it's okay to pay people for plasma donations in the United States, okay. in Germany, Austria, Hungary, Czechia, the United States, and parts of Canada, it's legal. Uh, um, it's illegal in Ontario since 2014. Then Alberta passed the same law. It's called the Voluntary Blood Donations Act in 2017, making it illegal to pay people for blood plasma donations. British Columbia followed in 2018. Quebec has had it illegal since 1994. Uh, the other provinces and territories, it's legal in the other provinces and territories. And currently, as we sit here, uh, the Senate is debating uh, a Voluntary Blood Donations Act, which would make it illegal across all of Canada. Okay. And I hope that doesn't pass. There are currently three cities that have a paid plasma clinic, Saskatoon in Saskatchewan, Moncton in New Brunswick, and Winnipeg in Manitoba. Okay. So um, we're going to take a quick break in a sec, but just I want to tie it up theoretically. What you're saying is uh, the Red Cross, I think you mentioned, they do distinguish between paid and uh, donated uh, blood. Yes. So you're saying, theoretically speaking, I can donate blood on Monday, 
And then the next Monday I can go back and I can be paid for blood. And the Red Cross distinguishes between those two bags, basically, and what they could do with it. They the do, States. although you're only allowed to donate blood once every about 56 okay. days. But but, it's, but once again, I can but go yes. back 56 days later and they distinguish that as it's a different issue, basically. One is for research. The other one is transfusion. Yes. Even if there's a bunch of people that need transfusions wait on a wait list somewhere, they, they uh, yes. can't use it. Wow. They cannot use it, and there's uh, there's some good reason not to allow payment for blood for transfusion because of the safety issue. Gotcha. It's okay. the plasma side of things where the safety issue is a non-issue. Okay, excellent. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break. Talking with Peter Jaworski on uh, Should Markets Have Limits. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send us questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Travis Smith, Vincent Geloso, and Ken Dubien. Remember to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS. Welcome back to The Curious Task. We're talking about whether or not markets should have limits. Um, Before the break, Peter was getting into the differences between uh, blood and plasma, specifically how they are used differently from a medical perspective, and also he was getting into the different areas where they were banned, whether or not um, sometimes it was acceptable for some to be donated, where you could use paid blood. So why don't we get back into that, Peter? Why don't you explain uh, real quick uh, the different ways uh, blood and plasma are used and why it's important that perhaps in some cases we don't want just uh, donated blood going to patients. And uh, on the other hand, we can talk in t- about uh, the story as to why certain areas in Canada have it banned and, and what's going on with that whole federal legal story. Yeah, okay. So just very briefly, um, both blood and plasma can be used for transfusions. And like Canada is totally self-sufficient for both. We have enough blood and we have enough plasma to transfuse into patients, which just means like we take it out of you and then we put it into me right? right? or put it into somebody else. Um, However, when it comes to plasma, we can also turn it into the medicines that I mentioned before. And the reason why it's permissible in the United States and in the countries that I mentioned to pay people for plasma is precisely because it can, in order to make these plasma medicines, the plasma goes through this process of being cleaned. Um, and these safety steps make it dramatically less likely that any kind of disease survives that process. Uh, I didn't mention it last time. I, I mentioned nanofiltration, which filters out some of these things. Uh, I mentioned solvents and detergents, which I think is the most important part of the process, you, right? That kills a, a, a number of possible viruses. Uh, and then also heat treatment. You can heat treat plasma that you're going to turn into medicine, but you cannot heat treat uh, blood or plasma that's going to be uh, transfused into another person because that kills the like the live things that you need in the blood in order for it to be useful. Okay. But you can heat treat it in order to make that plasma medicine and heat treatment is effective against HIV, for example. It kills the virus. Um, so you can, uh, since plasma can go through this process, the final product, the final plasma medicine is just as safe. This is from the words of like the CEO of Canadian Blood Services, Graham Sure, He said uh, that plasma medicine made from paid plasma is just as safe as plasma med- medicine made from unpaid 
plasma. Okay. Right? The safety issue is an enormous red herring in this debate. Many people who are arguing for banning paid plasma in Canada, like they bring up the tainted blood scandal from the 80s, and they use that in order to make us think that we might have another tainted blood scandal if we allow paid plasma in Canada. This is nonsense. Right. It is emphatically not the case. Right. There is no international but no one has suggested that paid plasma is unsafe, paid plasma used to make this medicine, that it that there's a, a risk of like another tainted blood scandal as a consequence of that. Right. Um, we've we now have almost 30 years of uh, use of this medicine and it's it, it the United States provides over 60. I think it's 67 percent of the entire world's plasma medicine. Like the entire world gets its plasma medicine from a country that pays donors, right? Mm. And, and across all of those cases over the past 30 years, not a single transmission of any virus from, from that source from the United States. <clears throat> so safety is not an issue in this, in this particular debate. However, uh, and they do raise that. There are other issues too. Uh, one of them, we talked about exploitation and the definition of exploitation. And they say, look, uh, look where these plasma centers are located in the United States. When um, Canadian Plasma Resources, which is one of the private companies that caused this uh, uh, storm in Canada, they, in 2012, they announced that they were going to open three paid plasma clinics in Ontario, one in Hamilton, two in, Tor in Toronto. Uh, and as soon as they announced that they were going to do that, lots of opponents lined up and started agitating for a change to the laws. The, the Ontario government, Kathleen Wynne was the premier at the time. They, they complied and they passed the Voluntary Blood Donations Act, making it illegal. Canadian Plasma Resources then said, okay, fine, we'll move to Alberta. And Alberta, under Rachel Notley's government uh, at the time, they, they, they then passed the Voluntary Blood Donations Act in 2017. Canadian Plasma Resources did manage to open one clinic in Saskatoon in 2016. They opened another one in Moncton, New Brunswick in 2017. And then they were uh, planning on opening in British Columbia because, I mean, that's the last province with a major sizable population. And just to clarify, so today it is still legal there? In New Brunswick, in Saskatchewan, okay. uh, in Manitoba, yes. Okay. Um, and then the British Columbia government followed in 2018 with a Voluntary Blood okay. Donations Act of its own, making it illegal. And like I was saying, the arguments that they presented included this worry about safety, which is a red herring. Like I said, it is just not an issue. Even Canadian Blood Services has done everything they can to make it clear to as many people as possible that these medicines are safe, mm -hmm. right? And of course they are because over 80% of our plasma medicine comes from a paid source, right? So you're and, willing to challenge anyone listening, go ahead and try and find the evidence basically. Please. That, okay, there you go. So yeah. anyone listening that's a little skeptical, Peter's <laughs> saying, go research it, go find Just go a way on. to prove them wrong. Go see if there's anything dangerous about uh, medicine that comes from uh, plasma donations Where or this paid podcast plasma. is linked, by the way, where people can see it, is there? Is it possible for us to have links underneath that? Oh, of course. Yeah, we can put on okay, the Okay, so there's a YouTube video of Graham Schur, um, the CEO of Canadian Blood Services, saying like, it is not true, categorically, like he cannot be more clear. 
So the safety issue is, is not relevant here. The issues that are relevant are two. One is exploitation, and they say, look at the locations of these plasma centers. It's in poorer parts of uh, the United States. And they said, like when in Ontario and Canadian uh, plasma resources mm -hmm. were opening, they said, well, look, it's next to a homeless shelter. Uh, it's in a poorer part of Hamilton, I guess, or Toronto. Right. So they say uh, um, it's poor people who are donating the plasma. I find the exploitation argument completely unconvincing. You get paid between 30 to $50 for about two hours of your time. The risks involved in donating plasma are uh, extremely small. There are very tiny risks. This is why we encourage people to donate plasma for free. We wouldn't do it if it was risky. So in terms of undue risk, it doesn't meet that criterion. In terms of the pressure that people feel to do it, it's 30 to $50. Now that's, that's quite a bit of money, but it's not so much that like it totally bypasses your rational capacity to make well, a decision. If it's two hours, 50 is 25 bucks an hour. There yeah, you go. it's more than minimum wage. I've right. made the joke in the U.S. that like people are fighting for fifteen or whatever, like fifteen dollars per hour. You, you get thirty plasma. bucks for a plasma. That's <laughs> there, you there. You go. Fight for fifteen. Uh, plasma meets that criterion. Um, it. In addition, it's worth pointing out that like I ask, I I speak. I'm on Twitter all the time, and I always like reach out to people who donate plasma, and I ask those people like, hey, uh, do you feel exploited? They're like, no. What are you crazy? Like right. no. Even um, like in a colloquial sense, you don't need to write a paragraph about what you mean as exploitation as an ethicist. You just say, Hey, do you feel exploited? No. Yeah. <laughs> Even like, in no, a common I... sense definition, nah. <laughs> yeah, they're like, no. And and it would be nice if for some reason we just never ask plasma donors. Like the people on the other side never bother to ask the people who are paid for plasma donations regularly, hey, hey, how do you feel about that? Right. They're, well, they're just I, telling them they're exploited. Yeah. Well, while using them for a political talking point, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What I do in the U.S., the last time I was in Houston giving a talk about markets without limits, and uh, the host was like, what, what do you want to do during your spare time? And I'm like, I want to go to a paid plasma clinic, which is what I always do. I go to, like, paid plasma clinics, and then I try to the extent that I can, like, talk to people who are donating plasma and i've now spoken with like dozens of people and they all report the same thing they're like this is a good opportunity and it's good money mm. and it's not like they're asking me to do a lot right i sit there for two hours and i like if they're a student they're like yeah i just do my homework or i do my readings when i'm sitting there donating plasma and okay so the exploitation issue i also think it just doesn't it doesn't work right they also uh, suggest that like people are donating with the wrong motives like we want people to donate with pro-social attitudes in mind we want people giving blood uh, plasma out of the kindness of their heart rather than um, in order to make a dollar or something like that and i'm like you ask please ask the people who donate plasma mm. and you'll discover that being paid for something doesn't preclude pro-social attitudes. Right. Isn't one or the other. Yeah, like the Canadian Federation of Nurses Unions is one of the groups that is arguing in favor of this ban. Well, guess what? Nurses get paid for what they do. Does that mean that there are no altruistic nurses in Canada? Do we assume that a nurse being paid does not care for the, the care that they're administering? Complete nonsense. Right. It's possible. We are complicated creatures. We're not like simple machines, right? We have complicated sets of motivations. I get paid to be a professor, right? 
it, well, let me ask Peter, do you like it? Do you care about being prof- <laughs> a professor? Are you being exploited? <laughs> well, I, I, I am definitely not being exploited. Right. Um, but the point is, like, you are and, paid and you like it. Yeah, and like, it, right, so the Canadian Federation of Nurses Unions, the Canadian Union of Public Employees, they're opposed to this, right? And one of the reasons why they're opposed to it is they say, well, we want people to donate uh, for pro-social reasons rather than just for the money. And and the issue is like, well, okay, what does that say about your thoughts with respect to your own members? Clearly, everybody thinks it's possible for a nurse to be paid for what he does and to care about his patients, right? And it's possible for professors to get paid for being a teacher and to care for their students. It's possible to have pro-social attitudes while also being paid for what you do. And so that's possible with plasma donors as well. And in terms of like the unfair distribution of the benefits from trade, for like an 810 milliliters, for the amount that you donate in two hours, you get paid 30 to 50 bucks. And for unfractionated plasma, it's like $200 per unit. The compensation that donors receive is the largest share of the expense that the plasma uh, clinics uh, pay, right? I think it is a fair exchange. And then the final objection that I think um, needs more study, and I'm part of uh, myself and my colleague, Bill English. We've now crunched the numbers, so we have uh, an answer to this. But the final objection is that it lowers unpaid blood donations. So if you have, the idea is if you allow a paid plasma center in, and Canadian Blood Services says this is true in Saskatoon. They said that like, uh, oh, this plasma clinic, this plasma center opened in Saskatoon and we started to see fewer blood donations in Saskatoon. Mm. Now, my colleague Bill and I have the data for Saskatoon. We also have the data for uh, Regina, which is another city in Saskatchewan that only has blood donations. We have the data for Moncton and St. John, right? Both in New Brunswick, similar populations. Uh, One has both blood and a plasma center. The other one, just a blood clinic. And we have the data for Winnipeg, Manitoba, where Prometic Plasma Resources pays people for plasma donations. And we're using Red Deer as a control for that city, and we have not found crowding out. That's what it's called. Um, instead, what, we, what we've discovered is that the presence of a plasma center increases unpaid blood donations rather than decreases it. Hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, the paper will be published or at least available on SSRN so we can link to it. Those are the arguments. And Well, it, it, it strikes me as sort of, as you're going through this, it strikes me that, uh, once again, back to the, the, the point of your whole book, Markets Without Limits, uh, with, uh, with Jason Brennan, all the objections you just answered, which are the most common and most like powerful objections to a market for blood or plasma, once again, sound a lot more to me like it would be more about how the market is structured and what would happen. It doesn't seem like anyone has a, a strong argument against why th- there should simply not be, quote, a commodification of blood. Yeah, that's right. In, in and of itself. Yep. Mm. Unless that you sounds can right know, to me. No, I mean, you um, study it more than I do, unless you can notify me of a a better, stronger argument someone's made against your position. But that's, as you went through the objections, that's sort of what I got out of that. Yeah, it could be about how it how it's run. Uh, I mean, it might turn out that Canadian, Canadian Blood Services is exempt from all of the laws against paying people for plasma donations. Hmm. And my suspicion, given how unsuccessful 
unpaid plasma. Look, no country in the world is self-sufficient in plasma medicine unless they pay donors. Hmm. Now, you might think that, oh, well, we just need more advertisements. We need more effort into recruiting plasma donors to do it for free rather than for money or whatever. And maybe in that bright future, you know, everybody lines up and donates plasma. But donating plasma takes an hour and a half to two hours. So it's not like donating blood, which takes like 30 minutes, right? right? It's a real pain. Why shouldn't these people get some kind of compensation for the time that they spend, right? Why shouldn't they? But also, like, given that it takes so long, how likely is it that people are going to donate for free often enough to meet the need? Um, Australia comes close-ish. I think they're like 70% self-sufficient. The rest they buy from the United States. People sometimes reference Italy as a case. They're like 90% self-sufficient in plasma, and Italy describes itself as not paying for plasma. But you get a paid day off work to donate blood or plasma. That's payment. Like That's legally mandated. That's legally So if permitted. I tell my boss in Italy, yeah, I, you, say, I decide to go back home and my uncle's old hometown and say, hey, guess what? I work here now and I'm going to take a day off to uh, to donate blood. They say, okay, well, that's that's legally, I need to pay you. You get you you get a paid day off work there to donate blood and or plasma. And under Canada's definition of unpaid, that would count as paid. Hmm. So Italy is not an example of like a successful unpaid uh, plasma place. No, they pay for plasma. They give you a paid day off work. That's payment. Right. Right. I mean, they can call it whatever they want to. Right. But that's payment. And yeah, no country is self-sufficient. The only countries that are self-sufficient in plasma medicine are countries that pay donors. Mm -hmm. So I, I conclude that it is incredibly unlikely that we will reach the targets, especially given the growth in the use of plasma medicine. Like it's growing at almost double digits every year, like 9.6% growth in immune globulin use in Canada, right? How are we how are we going to meet that how are we going to meet that demand without paying donors? Right. I mean we already pay donors, right? Let's not kid ourselves. We buy plasma medicine from the United States where they pay donors. Right. Someone's getting paid at the end of the line. It's just not Canadians. Yeah. We give money to companies in the United States who then turn around and use some of that money to compensate donors. Canada pays donors. That's the conclusion. For people who don't understand how ethics works, you don't get to like hire an agent and then something that it's not morally correct for you to do, you can hire someone else to do it for you. That doesn't like eliminate right. the moral wrong. <laughs> right. If you think it's morally wrong to like right like oh no like assassination that's wrong but what if i hire someone to do it for me if i hire a hitman i'm not yeah, suddenly that's morally okay no right utter nonsense so canada is canada pays donors it just turns out that they pay donors indirectly mm -hmm. and they pay american donors rather than canadian donors which is a separate like weird bit of hypocrisy mm -hmm. like why are we you know why aren't we paying Canadians? Right. So tie, to tie back to the highest level thesis in markets without limits, blood and plasma, it's something in most places in Canada you're able to do for free in terms of donations. Yes. So why aren't you able to be paid for it? That's that's ultimately the the uh, conclusion of your blood and plasma argument and the and the, the ultimate point of your book and, and, and your thesis, Markets Without Limits. That's right. You still haven't run into any objections about 
the donations themselves. It's more about the market, how the market is structured that people object to. They're worried about all this bad stuff happening if we had a market for blend plasma, but it's it's ultimately not about the actual commodification itself. Yeah, I mean, they do raise that issue. I have a response to it. They're like, we shouldn't commodify blood or plasma, but actually, I, I mean, it's weird that they think about that at the level of, of the donation. But if you think about it, in, in Canada, everybody gets paid. Like the nurse, the phlebotomist, the doctors, you know, everybody gets paid with the exception of the donor. Right. It's like plasma is commodified, quote unquote, already. It's just at the level of like the donor right the donor facing part but everybody else gets paid so it's already so i find it difficult to understand why we're not worried about commodification once it's out of the donor mm. right then we slap a price tag on it and it's like well that's okay somebody like i would love to hear from somebody why the emphasis is on that one tiny little point all the other objections are exactly as you put it they're about how it's done mm. rather than whether or not there are price tags attached because it has a price it just does right it has a value people pay for medicine people right it has a value and i should point out <clears throat> nobody has yet proposed like a voluntary nurses act a voluntary nurses act where like nurses don't get paid look if somebody were to propose a voluntary nurses act uh, which would uh, make it illegal to pay nurses for what they do. The Canadian Federation of Nurses Union, they would be up in arms. They would object right. to this kind of uh, law. And you know what they would argue? They would say, look, if we don't pay nurses, we're going to have a shortage of nurses. Mm -hmm. That reasoning applies to blood plasma just as surely as it applies to nurses. If we don't pay for blood plasma, we're going to see a shortage. Right. And indeed, we have a shortage in Canada. Thankfully, the United States pays donors, and thankfully, we have that outlet. We mm -hmm. can just buy it from the United States, and we do. And, and they might also argue, if it's okay for us to volunteer to be nurses, it's probably okay for us to get paid. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and um, That's good, on Alex. A, thanks. <laughs> on a, on a um, slightly different note, but I think it, it runs in, in sort of uh, parallel to everything we discussed today. So, so again, and uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I want to reiterate to everyone's listening, everyone that's listening, if you, if you read uh, Peter and uh, Jason Brennan's book, they do say, once again, uh, markets without limits doesn't mean unregulated markets, markets that can do anything. So you even go a bit deeper in, um, in that at a certain part in your book where you guys actually directly tell the readers, look, uh, I'm speaking as you as if you were authoring, I was co-authored. You basically say, look, uh, me, me and Jason... Uh, uh, we, we don't agree with libertarian political morality, so don't, don't get any crazy ideas about what we're saying. Um, as a matter of fact, you say, we don't want people to take away from this book that we're, we're cartoon libertarians. And I wanted um, you to dive a bit into that and what you guys meant by that. And I also um, wanted you to let me know if you think that sort of um, relates back to what people might in their head think of as, oh my God, it's an unregulated market kind of thing. Is yeah. that what you're saying? People, that the cartoon libertarian position might say, look, it's legal, do whatever you want. Yeah, okay. Um, so here's a book that could be written also with the title Markets Without Limits. Okay. Chapter one is we defend a controversial moral position, like people have rights, they have mm -hmm. property rights, there's natural rights, whatever. And then the remaining chapters just show that once you accept this controversial moral view, then it follows that you have a, or you should have a right to buy and sell anything, 
that is your property, mm -hmm. right? We don't take that approach, and we don't take that approach for a number of reasons, the most important of which is that neither Jason nor I uh, believe that that's the truth about ethics, right? Both of us are more or less like uh, you know classical liberals rather than libertarians, where the difference, uh, where the difference between the two, lies in the um, political morality that you accept. So both of us, both classical liberals and libertarians, are going to agree about the set of political institutions that we should have, and the set of rules that make for a good and free society. Right, the ones that we should have. Mm. But the reasons why we want those institutions are different, and they're importantly different. Uh, the quote-unquote cartoon libertarians, we have people like Murray Rothbard in mind, um, people like, I know, I'm sure that there are listeners who are going to be upset with me saying they're gonna this. Get very, they're going to get very angry at you, people very, like very angry at me for not punching you or something. I don't know. Like They're just going to be like, someone stop this madman. But just <laughs> People like Ayn Rand. Right, you know, okay. Um, uh, uh, People who think that like it's just a fact that we have certain kinds of very strict rights, and, neither... and as long as you don't do X, Y, and Z, you're good. The the conversation can stop. Yeah, and Jay and I are more or less boring, like Rawlsian liberals about political morality, right. or we're more or less consequentialists. Um, I say more or less because I do think that autonomy matters. I'm a pluralist about ethics. I think what ultimately matters are two things. Autonomy, which is like the appropriate attitude towards an autonomous creature is an attitude of respect. Mm -hmm. And the second one being welfare or well-being, where the appropriate attitude towards a creature with a well-being or a welfare is an attitude of concern or right. an attitude of care. So you can take the case of children as a good case in point. Typically, we think that their welfare trumps their autonomy when they're very young. And then at some point, we allow them to make more decisions and we begin to respect them when they're like, whatever, 16, 18, 20, whatever. And it, it kind of switches. And I think the ultimate truth is that both of those are like <clears throat> the like moral, the primary moral building blocks of the correct uh, view about ethics. Right. Both autonomy and well-being count. And so I do think that there are complicated questions about when well-being trumps autonomy and in what cases autonomy trumps well-being. I think I think autonomy I think well-being in principle will trump uh, many cases of autonomy. So in principle I'm happy to endorse all kinds of non-libertarian uh, non-libertarian things. But you also have to keep in mind that like the move from like what we discuss in principle is different from uh, the kinds of institutions that we should endorse. I have an article in Nomos, I call it the like ought state gap. The idea is that like there's a division between um, what we think is the truth about morality and then how we realize the truth about morality hmm. in practice through our institutions. And that gap is filled by empirical facts, right? So even if in principle I'm open to like all kinds of things that are, um, you know, anti-classical liberal or whatever, it doesn't mean that in practice I endorse those institutions and the same is true for Jason Brennan. So that's that's kind of what we meant by cartoon libertarians. Mm -hmm. um, we have, uh, I think the view that we endorse in the book can be described as like common sense 
morality because I think most people are going to recognize that like well-being matters quite a bit right and that it can trump autonomy in many in many cases so we, we avoid the the approach to the book that's like here's a controversial view and now markets without limits follows instead we take people on their own terms and we say what are your objections right. hey look notice that like this objection that you raised can be addressed in this way or this objection that you've raised it turns out that the empirical facts are on the other side and you shouldn't be worried about them we don't try to change people's minds about fundamental ethics, right? We try to show them that their own view about ethics results in the conclusions of, of the book. And we did it because we think it's the truth about ethics, by the way. That's important to note. Cool. So I wanted to end off on that for two reasons. One, I wanted to put a finer point on the idea that, look, for anyone listening who hasn't read Markets Without Limits, this is in fact not, as Peter would describe, a, uh, a cartoon libertarian book where we say, look, um, no. X, Y, and Z is right. Therefore, if someone steps on your property, you can bazooka their legs. So it's not that kind of discussion. The, the second point I wanted to, uh, second reason why I wanted to bring up that point as well is because I think uh, we just provided a great teaser for another episode we might do together where we can talk about the differences in a libertarian morality if you'd like to do that. I would love to do that. Great. So there you go. I, he, he, he took the bait and, and now we have another episode. <laughs> so thanks for signing up for another episode. Thanks so, for having me. No, oh, no worries, of course. And you know what? Let, let's bring it to conclusion. We're out of time here. We've talked for an hour. I would have loved to talk for four hours, but hence hence the limits. Um, no limits. Uh, yes, yeah, so hence the limits of this market, I was going to say, because it's a regulated one. It's not unregulated. But, but, that's right. But Podcast yeah. without limits. That's a different episode. <laughs> that's a different episode. It's a different show. <laughs> We've talked about a lot. I just want to bring it full cir circle so you can put a finer point on everything and have the last word. Um, in short order, what do you hope the main takeaways for someone listening to your opinion on what the limits of markets should be is? Uh, it's the slogan, if you can do it for free, you can do it for money. Um, that's that basically settles the what question and then everything hangs on how we uh, design um, markets. Great. Markets Without Limits is by uh, Peter Jaworski and Jason Brennan. You should look for it online and purchase it. And uh, that was my plug there. Thank you very much for being with us today, Peter. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.